Welcome to Primarily, the podcast all about the politics, policies, and personalities of the 2020 Democratic primary. I'm your host, Karen Robinson. Welcome to this special Debate Watch episode of Primarily 2020. There were two debates screened over the course of this week on Wednesday and Thursday night. We watched both of them on Friday night, finishing very late, and then recorded this podcast until nearly midnight. So um, if we seem a little addled and sleep deprived, then forgive us. But actually, we were pretty fired up by it because I think it was a really fascinating debate. It was brilliant to see all of these candidates, well, at least 10 of these candidates on stage with each other and 10 of these candidates on stage with a different set of candidates, but to finally hear from all of the candidates in the race and get a sense of um, whether the front runner positions were were valid. I think there were some really interesting outcomes for that. Um, so listen up. Um, so just to, to quickly set the scene, um, these two debates were unevenly divided. The first debate was Elizabeth Warren, um, Julian Castro, Cory Booker, um, Beto O'Rourke were the kind of top polling candidates in that debate, but none of them except Warren were polling in the in this in the in the double digits. So it was set up as being almost kind of an undercard debate, even though Warren is a is a top tier candidate. And the second one had kind of all the other candidates who um, people were watching closely. So it had um, Joe Biden it had Bernie Sanders, it had um, it had Pete Buttigieg, um, and uh, a lot of people who people will be watching very, very closely. So um, I think the two debates were not set up on equal terms. Um, and one of the things that's interesting to watch is people like Kamala Harris, who has been performing quite well and was high up in the polls or reasonably high up in the polls um, in this debate. Uh, she, she had some breakthrough moments. So it was interesting to see how that came through. You'll see that as we go through the panel. So we'll come to that recap in just one minute's time. Before we get to the debates, though, I want to tell you about PodCoin. PodCoin is a podcast player that pays. You earn credits for the podcasts you listen to, and you can use those credits to buy useful things like Amazon gift vouchers, Starbucks gift vouchers, or you can donate those credits to charity. I use it myself lately for all the podcasts that I've been listening to, and actually, I really like it. I was skeptical at first, but it's working for me. If you want to give it a try, just download the PodCoin app and enter the code PRIMARILY2020. That's Primarily 2020. No punctuation, no spaces. Enjoy. Welcome to the special Debate Watch edition of the Primarily 2020 podcast. I am here in our Debate Watch venue, um, surrounded by, well, cleaning staff at this point, but <laughs> previously by excited Democrats who have just watched an epic what about three and a half hours of back-to-back -back primary debates? So we are all debated up. Um, I'm very happy to have here with me today um, two friends of the pod, um, former guests. First of all, Asha Sivas, who uh, podcast listeners may remember from the immigration uh, episode we did, Nation of Immigrants. Say hi, Asha. Hello, everyone. <laughs> Welcome back. And a uh, frequent podcast guest, Emma Vernell, who's made her, her second home to come here on Primarily 2020, um, who you may remember from many episodes, including the electability episode most recently. Say hi, Emma. Hello, Emma. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I think we've, we've 
all been through the ringer because it's been a long night. Um, and I don't know about you, but I'm, I'm still pretty fired up, actually. Um, and I have a lot to say that I want to get into. But we did watch two different debates back to back. And I would say, I think it's fair to say, very different debates, actually. Mm-hmm. Um, so let's take them in turns, and let's talk about the first debate first. The first debate, which featured um, uh, 10 candidates, as they both did, featured candidates like Elizabeth Warren, Cory Booker, um, Amy Klobuchar, um, and a, a, a collection of, um, of candidates. Um, what stood out, Asha, for you from that first debate? Well... A topic that is, of course, very important to me is immigration, and a lot of the Democratic field for a long time was avoiding the topic altogether, so I was really happy to see it front and center. I was really happy that it went into substance, and I thought that William Custer did a really amazing Mm. job about explaining decriminalization of immigration crossing the border, which is an area I don't think many Americans know about. I also was really impressed that for the first debate, there seemed to be at least kind of equal time. A lot of people had a lot of time to talk about things. Um, and there were a clear grouping of like six or seven who actually had lots of good policy to talk about. And I thought that was very heartening. Yeah, I think that's uh, for me, Julian Castro really stood out. Um, not because Elizabeth Warren didn't stand out, but because I expected her to, whereas I knew less about Julian Castro. So he was my pleasant surprise of the night. Um, this was definitely a debate where the pretenders got found out. Um, and Who that, got found out? Oh, well, I mean, Tim Ryan just spent the entire night looking like a deer in the headlights <laughs> and hadn't slept for a fortnight. Um, and John Delaney... Not John Mahoney. Not John Mahoney, which is, I, just in my head, he's been John Mahoney. Not, I, I know they're different people, but I just pictured him in my head as John Mahoney, and that's who I was like, oh, Fraser's dad, okay. But he just was so out of his depth. Yeah. Um, and I, yeah, I started off feeling quite sneery, and then I went through, I'm sorry for you because you're so clearly out of your depth. And I'm like, but that's such a, I mean, my God, the ego on the mediocre white man. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> there were quite a few... I, I don't want to go so far as to say mediocre, but there were quite a few white men on stage who's didn't feel to me like they earned their presence there. Um, so, yeah. Yeah. Uh, I mean, and, you know, there were some really amazing stand-up. I think what's interesting, if I may give a little background flavor to our preparation, our very quick preparation for this, is that we went through uh, straight after the debates to name all the candidates and the one we struggled to name really bizarrely was Beto O'Rourke. Yes. Yes. So in terms of surprises of the night, um, I'll let you guys talk about what surprised you from that first debate in a minute. Um, For me, one of the big surprises was in the room where we were, it felt like there was a lot of eye rolling and groaning when (sighs) Beto spoke. Um, I think, and, and, and some of that was reflected on stage. I think Emma and I were nudging each other when the very first question, the very first answer he did, Beto answered in Spanish and Cory Booker gave him such an eye roll. <laughs> I think it's kind of a little bit of a meme now. Um, and I thought it was really interesting because as Emma asked me, she turned to me and asked me while the debate was going, is Beto Latino? And I said, no, he's, he's actually not. Um, his, his name is Latino. His name is a Hispanic surname, uh, nickname for Roberto, but he himself is not of Hispanic origin. Um, and I think it was really interesting that he 
clearly jumped in with Spanish, even though the question had nothing to do with immigration or the or the Latino community. I almost community. feel like he was doing all-nighters, practicing his Spanish instead of <laughs> practicing actual policy yeah. points because he jumped in on a question, like just in case he didn't get to speak Spanish, he felt like he had to get it in. And it was just so like, straight out of the, the box. It was like, you know, if you'd done that halfway through the debate, actually that might have felt less... Forced. Well, when when Castro and Booker did it, I mean, both of them spoke Spanish later in the debate, but in the context of specifically addressing the Latino community, which seemed right, it just felt I weird when better did. I can, to be fair, there's an argument to be made about not doing it in that question mm-hmm. and doing it in yeah, and because the Spanish-speaking audience are interested in a variety mm-hmm. of policy, it isn't just immigration, it isn't just uh, that those issues, but. It was the straight out of the box freshness of it, and it was like I'm going to get in for anyone else can do it, and that yeah. just felt a little too, little too guy in the front with his hand up, you know. Yeah, I, I felt like it was really disappointing that he, in general, didn't have specific policy ideas at all, yeah. and especially in the first debate, a lot of people on that stage did, mm-hmm. and it was just topic after topic yeah. after topic was just like bland generalities about yeah. whatever. And, and, and when you think about how much Pete Buttigieg has been um, criticised for that, and I don't think Beto's had that nearly so much, but actually I felt of the two of them over the two debates, Buttigieg had more specifics. Buttigieg had more specifics. Um, well, certainly than Beto O'Rourke, not than most other people. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> so, um Okay, so we've talked about we've talked about Beto dismissively. Sorry, Beto. <laughs> we love you really. Just you know, maybe raise your game a little bit. We've talked about Castro, who I think really was. I agree with both of you. A real standout performance, and and I'm glad about that because I, I I actually was thinking before the debate, he's one of the candidates I kind of wanted to hear more from, not least because I think immigration is going to be a huge issue, and he's the one who's had the most serious policy thought on that. What about Cory Booker? Booker interested me because on paper I don't like Booker at all. Well, no, no, on my type on paper, as they say in Love Island over here, which will mean nothing to your American audience. Um, but I like Booker's stats and his background. And then when I read his quotes, I find myself left quite cold. So actually seeing him in the flesh and seeing him do it in person, I was like, oh, okay, the poetry makes more sense when it's delivered by you in that way. Now I see that. Uh, so he impressed me because what had left me cold on the page actually moved me in person. Asha? I also really liked, and this is a theme for both debates, I thought one big generational shift that I really love is that people talk about how federal government policy affects themselves instead of just talking about how it affects other people, as if you're above everyone talking about that. And so I think Cory Booker didn't do it as well as some others did. I think Elizabeth Warren had a really good closing about it. Kamala Harris, which we'll get to, did it really well. But he, he did it as well, which said, like, look, the policies that other people in this room might be talking about abstractly or even past abstractly, I've actually had to live with your decisions, and I like that. Yeah, yeah. and she does that consistently. She's She very much pulls policy back to her own personal experience mm-hmm. and extrapolates her personal experience to all of, I would say, all of kind of working in middle-class America. Yeah. She's, she's not trying to speak for every American. She's trying to speak for the people who have been left behind. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and I, I, I get I'm in it. 
I think that what was impressive on that is that she manages to combine that, I have the plan, I have the detail. And sometimes that that detail candidate can be really dry and she just doesn't do that because every time the detail goes back to that middle class home that she grew up in. Yeah. And that that's a really clever combination. So where Hillary Clinton was just kind of, I've got a plan for that, I've got a six-point plan for that, I've got a simple actually elizabeth warren's like i have a plan you can trust me with having a plan but the reason i have a plan is because i have a heart and a half and a home yeah i care it affects me it matters to me so i think we all think elizabeth warren did well but i would say going into this debate um she was the one who all eyes were going to be on because she was the highest polling person of any person on that stage all of the other higher polling candidates and uh were on the other debate stage so i guess my question is I think she did. I think we think she did well. Do we feel like, from an expectations point of view, she met, exceeded, or fell below expectations in terms of that background? I think she met expectations for me, but I'm someone who's addicted to Twitter. And <laughs> Twitter has been big on Warren for a bit now. So you're getting clips and quotes and all these things from her all the time. And so maybe that's why it was like a mad expectations thing. I think a lot of people actually don't know her well. Yeah. I hope yeah. they were pleasantly surprised. I think that's a really interesting question to ask because those people who really tuned in for the first time, how did they feel? Because mm. I'm kind of on Team Warren, basically. <laughs> um, my eyes are open to other candidates, but my heart currently lies in Team Warren. Um, <laughs> You're actually, in a relationship, but flirting. Yeah, yeah, it's complicated. <laughs> <laughs> but... Um, she, yeah, I think she met my expectations. She didn't disappoint me. Yeah. Uh, and I would be honest if I felt she had. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I think she lived up to what I wanted to see from her. Mm-hmm. I think she had both a complicated... Uh, yeah, she should have been on the other stage where most of the other major candidates were. And it would have been interesting. I really want to see her up against Bernie Sanders. I really want to see her up against Joe Biden. Yeah. I really don't want to see her up against Marianne Williamson. <laughs> <laughs> Um, Marianne Williamson only seems to be running against Elizabeth Warren, mm-hmm. slightly bizarrely. Um, but I think in what was quite clearly the lesser debate, she was the giant, despite yeah. the fact that the high differential on stage yes. was hilarious. So I think, so 538 have been doing as they as they do, because it's their thing, yeah. bless them for it. They've been doing a really interesting data poll immediately after the debates where they look at the number of words spoken by all of the candidates. And I think it's noteworthy to just look in that first debate and note that the person who had the most words spoken in that debate was Cory Booker. And I think that kind of came across in that he felt like he had a very strong debate um, in terms of getting his personality across. Um, Elizabeth Warren, who, as we've discussed, was perhaps the the one everybody was looking to, was only third of the candidates. And actually, Chuck Todd, the moderator, had more words spoken than almost all of the candidates, bar three. Yeah, that was the guy. (laughs) Um, I'm curious because a lot of people would, there is a lot of... So who was second in terms of the candidates? Uh, Castro was second. Okay. I believe. That's interesting. Yeah. Um, so I thought that was really interesting, and 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 I think it's it's it made me wonder if there's any gender dynamic going on there, um, because traditionally women 
they're interrupted more and they successfully interrupt less. And in this type of format, that can be tricky. Although we'll come on to it in a second. That was not a problem for Kamala Harris. <laughs> she was okay with that. But but do you think there's anything of that going on there or do you think she was just fine? I mean, I think that is always going on. Yeah. Consciously or unconsciously, that always exists. Um, there is the bias that if a woman speaks 50% less she's considered to have spoken equally yeah um but actually you and I are both comms professionals I'm sorry I don't know what you do during the day but, um, Ash is a lawyer yes. oh well you definitely know about the power of, of words <laughs> then At, both you and I would say it doesn't matter how many words you say it's the words that you say yeah. and how you say them that matters and so it may well be that people got more words in yeah. or less words in but actually the point is that the what you say counts yeah. and the message that counts. Yeah, I'd be curious how she deals with a stage hogger, like a real yeller stage right. hogger. I really want to see her on the same stage as some of the other yeah. people from the second debate because I think that will tell a yeah. lot. Second debate was a lot more feisty as well. There was a lot more yelling over each other. Right. Shall we move on to the second debate? So, okay, clear our overall impressions of the first debate, which I would say, like, just to wrap up, I would say it was a quieter debate than the second debate. It was more thoughtful, I think. Yeah. yeah. Um, more substantive I mean, policy. Yeah, definitely more so. I mean, okay. the Elizabeth Warren debate. Maybe. Yeah, it was, the Elizabeth, it was the debate Elizabeth Warren should have. Yeah. And, yeah, there were a couple of people who were found out. As yeah. we've already mentioned, yeah. and I suspect there'll be a few dropouts fairly soon. I mean, you've got to start winnowing the field now. We mm. cannot do this every time. <laughs> right. Okay, so debate two, which featured all of the top tier candidates, Bar Bar Beto and uh, and Warren. So Buttigieg was on that stage. Sanders was on that stage. Uh, Vice President Biden, who is by far the front runner in terms of the the current polling. Um, what did we make of that? And, come on, and Senator Kamala Harris, who I'm sure we'll be talking about quite a bit in this, um, a very different tone to that debate. What surprised you? What stood out for you? What, what were your first impressions, Asha? So uh, we were talking about this earlier, but I think that some candidates clearly thought, okay, there's going to be 10 people on the stage. I'm only going to have to talk for a few minutes. Let me just stick to platitudes and figure out the rest later. And some people had a real deer in the headlights issue where they, if you drill down with them in any depth, they seem to just freeze. Yeah. Um, but Do you, you want to name names? Which is that in the second debate, everyone was trying out their platitudes, yeah. like their yeah. slogans and key talk tone talking points much more than in the first. And what surprised me actually was Buttigieg delivered really well. Yeah. I wasn't actually sure whether these kind of generic talking points and like sense of feeling without, you know, going drilling into detail, whether he could actually deliver it and I could hear it and it would stand out. And it actually stood out in the field of everyone doing various weird yeah. platitudes about <laughs> their daughters and changing diapers and whatever else. You know, he, he actually delivered those platitudes with a sense of gravitas, actually. Interesting. Okay, so, so Buttigieg was a standout for you, perhaps, potentially. Yeah. I mean, for me, Kamala Harris was the absolute standout. Yeah. Um, she was someone I already had in my top tier. But, um, yeah, I was more impressed than I expected to be, given I already expected to be impressed. Um, I didn't think Biden handled the debate well at all. Um, and I think, uh, and this is something that I meant to say about the first debate, but didn't, um, t 
to talk about Tulsi Gabbard. Mm. Um, but it also happened in the second debate. Some of the candidates still seem to think it's 2004 mm. and that the way to win the primary is to be the most militaristic or the most, like, I have, you know, I've done this service. And, I, mm. and, you know, there was a whole, like, mad moment about 9-11. And it was like, guys, that was 18 years ago. Mm. A whole person who can vote to go. Can we, like, like, I'm not saying that you... That there are things that you don't move on from, and I think anyone who's seen the John Stewart clip recently knows that you know, yeah. they would love to move on if they could yeah. have the healthcare to do so. But that's a different thing from just doing the kind of uh, all American hero stuff. Yes, that's what Ryan is his name, Ryan. Tim. The first day, yeah. they were the one with the deer in the headlights, yeah. really messed up in the first debate, which I really want to clarify, which is that he went on about 9 11 and tried yeah. to tie it to the Taliban. Yeah. It's like the Taliban didn't do yeah. 9-11. Al-Qaeda mm. did 9-11. Yeah. And, like, he's just, like, mm, okay, trying to bring that up. It I mean, wasn't the Taliban, but it wasn't Al-Qaeda either, because, well, okay, yeah, fine. Yeah, yeah. you know, I mean, it, it, Bin Laden helped inspire it. Most yeah, yeah. of the people who yeah. flew the planes were from Saudi Arabia. But Al-Qaeda was a franchise. Yeah, yeah. yeah, it's like medicine. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and, and so it's just, like, this idea that we were in a war yeah. in Afghanistan that we needed to do continually yeah. because of 9-11. Yeah. Ran yeah. So weird. And but also think, a way of like it may be in the national debate when you're up against the Republican. Yeah. I mean, maybe a less isolationist Republican than Trump is, I mean, although who knows tomorrow. Yes. Um, but in the Democratic primary, like Obama literally won the nomination in 2008, which is only four years after 2004, mm -hmm. because almost solely on the fact that he'd opposed the Iraq war and that was his real dividing line. Mm -hmm. And it worked for him then. The idea that now, all these years later, that's the line to take in a democratic primary. So there was another thing. I, there was a moment where um, Joe Biden said something like, the gun manufacturers are the enemy. The NRA is not the enemy. Yeah. And I, I don't like, know what his point was supposed to be yeah. there. The NRA are totally the yes. enemy. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Yeah. So that that was weird to me on a number of levels. First of all, I genuinely don't know what he was trying to say. Yeah. Also, um, who funds the NRA? Well, and, and, the, and that's the other thing. Like the NRA, people talk about the NRA as if it's a membership organization, but they get the vast majority of their funding from actual gun manufacturers. Yes. They basically are a trade a trade body yeah. for the gun industry. Um, but to, just to come back to this point on the military, on the, the military issue, I think there are two interesting things, and it's generational. So um, Sanders had a real go at Joe Biden for voting for the Iraq war. Yeah, yeah. He said, I've got the quote in front of me here, one of the differences that Joe and I have in our record is Joe voted for that war, I helped lead the resistance to that war. And that got a, a cheer in the room. Um, but it also still felt to me a little bit like, well, again, that's We're that's an old debate we're talking about. Yeah. Buttigieg, who we referenced earlier, Buttigieg was the only person in that second debate who had so, direct military experience. And he was kind of, the moderators were kind of inviting him to use that as a platform to talk about, for example, gun control. And he kind of... He addressed it, but he said, uh, he said, actually, it's my whole experience that informs that. And he kind of felt like it felt to me like Buttigieg was trying to say military experience is important, but it's not 
the whole definition of a person and it's not the whole thing we should base a presidency on which was kind of a tonally different thing than the older generation because if it ever goes further he does have military experience and i don't want to downcount that but it would downplay that but it 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 was brief and it was pretty far from the actual he's free to he freely admits himself and so as a result i think it is really modest of him and something i actually appreciate that he doesn't try and exaggerate that and yeah. play it up. That he's just like, I did this. I felt it was the honorable thing to do. And but I, I don't think that's you know the where, reason why everyone has to listen to me on this. Where he did use it well, I thought, was in his closing statement, mm-hmm. where he said, "Look, I'm the only one who's had to write the in case of mm-hmm. letter." And I thought, and that kind of encompassed a large. You know, it sort of said, "This yeah. is my military story. The military story is not um, about." what I did over there, it's about the impact back here. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And that was a, a, you know, I thought it was a really, a really mm-hmm. good use of that. Well, so, so Bittergy actually said two things. He said that, and then the second thing he said was, and I'm, and, and he was talking about the fact that politics is not abstract and that it affects people's lives. Mm-hmm. And he, that his one example was military service, and the other example he used was that he's in a marriage that mm-hmm. only exists because of one vote of the Supreme Court. And for me, that was a really powerful mm-hmm. moment. Um, because first of all, it's the first time we have had an openly gay candidate standing mm-hmm. up and, and professing that. So I kind of think we just need to pause and note that. Absolutely. But from a kind of broader perspective, it was a really interesting series of two day, two debates to look at, um, in terms of representing the diversity that we saw within that stage. And I was, I think I was more kind of in more, more pleased than I expected to be to see multiple female candidates Mm -hmm. and to see different minority Mm -hmm. representation, not just like a tokenistic minority Mm -hmm. representation, but across the piece, you had a couple of Mm African-American candidates. You had a a Hispanic, uh, a Latino candidate. And it just mattered to me. I was like, this feels more like the country that I recognize. And what's great as a feminist in particular, it's like last time around, I was like, my politics are slightly closer to Bernie, not completely, but closer to Bernie than they were to Hillary. But I'm so, my feminism is such a vital component. I was like, Hillary, Hillary. (laughs) And now it's great because I get this choice of women across the political spectrum rather than just having to go for the woman. Yeah, and I think it's a real generational shift where the idea was the best politician or the best judge is the person who's never had to deal with anything. Yeah, yeah, that's yeah, yeah. the best neutral. Right, and so that it's better. To like have the straight white male is the default. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. and I think that it's really good that we've moved on from that, and yeah. we're getting a lot of people. Well, there's someone should probably tell Tim Kaine. <laughs> <laughs> Tim Kaine? Yeah. What? I don't, oh, Tim sorry. sorry, I don't mean Tim Kaine. Do I don't disparage Tim Kaine, who is actually pretty good on these issues. Apologies to Tim Kaine. Other white Ryan. guy. Yeah. Who's another white guy? Oh. Yeah. They all, they they all the look alike. <laughs> I know. It's so <laughs> hard. I'm going to bother you about the second debate. I really have to get off my chest because I said something in the room and someone contradicted me very wrongly. And I was like, no, oh. I have to clarify. Fight, Asha, fight. No, so... Bernie Sanders says said that one of the solutions to abortion and it, the rights being reduced was Medicare for all. Yeah. And I exclaimed in the room, but it not if matter. it's illegal. I yeah, heard you say that. Not if it's illegal. Then what does it matter? And then someone said they can pass a federal law. Mm-hmm. So I just want to be like very clear. And I think, all but that's not what Bernie gets, said. Like he yeah. could have said that, yeah, but that yeah, wasn't yeah, what he yeah, said. Yeah, no. he didn't well, say. I mean, you couldn't anyway. I mean, I think that the problem, all the kids are dancing around it, but how our system is set up right now is if the Supreme court declares 
that abortion is a state rights or local rights issue. And I want to get to that about Biden because he stepped yeah. his foot in the batter sure. there. But if it's a state right or local rights issue, then it doesn't, Congress can't pass federal law on it. You know what I mean? Once the Supreme Court says it's unconstitutional, you have to go back through the Supreme Court and get them to declare that it's constitutional yeah. again, that the federal government can trump states that have abolished it. But hang on a second, though. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, okay. So, just make sure yeah. I'm clear on this. Yeah. So the federal government, mm-hmm. so the, the judiciary mm-hmm. system mm-hmm. in Roe versus Wade mm-hmm. declared that women have a consti- fundamental constitutional right mm-hmm. to abortion. Yeah. Mm-hmm. If obviously that were overturned, mm-hmm. then the states could pass state laws and actually states like Alabama and Georgia have already signaled by passing legislation that would be enacted I if this happened, that they would immediately the outlaw it. Would it would not just be overturned. The concern would be they would say this is a state right issue yeah. and they can so that's my point. So you're saying a federal law would not be possible because if it were not constitutionally protected, I just want to be make, make sure I'm really clear on this, the, the legalities of this, because if it were not a constitutionally protected right, then the result, then the right to regulate it would automatically devolve to the states. Right. Well, not necessarily, but the, if you say that, um, so this is how it go. It, go, it will get, it get appeals up. The federal court says there's nothing in the Constitution about this. We've decided, even though all these past yeah. the court privacy rights, you know, all that, everything. whatever, it's all out the window. The original founders weren't thinking about abortion when they wrote this. It's out. Um, oh, no, because they were all gone. Yeah, and yeah, and then if <laughs> and there write, wasn't and if one. they and they write <laughs> in so. that like this well, is clearly yeah. an issue for the states. Yeah. For them to do as they wish with this issue. Yeah. And it's explicitly written that the states can ban abortion if they so choose. Yeah. Then then you, you can't have a federal law that overrides a state law. You can't. So even if you yeah, pass yeah, Medicare yeah. for all and you say... That that doesn't help you if you're in Mississippi and they've banned abortion. Yeah. Now, if you're in Mississippi and they've banned abortion, yeah. but you have a federal Medicare for all, mm-hmm. can you cross the state line and have an abortion? Well, they're trying to criminalize that well, right yeah. now. Well, so, yeah. So Georgia, the law that... The, the bill that Georgia passed, which can't be enacted because Roe versus Wade stands, but will be enacted if and when Roe falls, would criminalize going across state lines for the purpose of getting an abortion. Now, I personally, and I've actually been privately having Facebook conversations with lawyer friends of mine going, I'm not sure how this stands within the Commerce Clause. Mm-hmm. Freedom but, of movement. Freedom of movement. Because yeah. the Commerce Clause regulates interstate commerce, right? So the Commerce Clause of the Constitution has been previously Used by um, uh, by the, the by the legislature and the judiciary to justify all sorts of federal legislation and also the over the overruling of all sorts of state legislation that would have an impact on it. Uh, anyway, you know what? We're deviating we way into the way, abortion. Way, but way, get three women talking no, again. Here we go. <laughs> but I mean, the basic point is that all that you can do is is the federal government can go to the states and say, if you want Medicare, you have to allow abortion or you don't get Medicare. That's the most that they could do if the Supreme Court goes otherwise. So there is another elephant in the room that we haven't touched on yet, which is the Joe Biden issue. He did not have a good night. He did not have a good night. He really didn't. So he is obviously... When we talked about the NRA answer, that was bad. Boom. There was... You could hear it. 
pin drop in that moment when Kamala Harris oh, came after yes. him. Oh, my and goodness. he backed up states' rights. So why I made a big point he about that. He wound up there. arguing yeah. the Republican I mean, position on states' rights. Better than this. I want that guy back. Okay, so I have to tell you, I having I was not able to avoid all of the debate commentary beforehand. So I did read some of it because I live online and that's yeah. where that's happening. So I, I knew so backed up on podcasts right now. I mean my god. <laughs> so I knew that the conventional wisdom was that Harrison had a good night and Biden had had a badish night. I was unprepared for how bad Joe Biden came across, not just in that exchange, which, by the way, was fire. Uh, and but not only was she fire, but his response. He was oh, feeble. Was just, well, it wasn't feeble. It was tone deaf. Yeah. Yeah. It was so tone You That response to a black woman saying, I was bust. Yeah. yeah. Are you kidding me? I yeah. was surprised. So I know Joe Biden in the past as a politician of very deep empathy. Yeah. Right? And that's the thing. So I would have expected him to turn to her, standing two people over from him, and feel her pain and share with her his own kind of belief in and support for the civil rights movement. And instead, he just said, that's a mischaracterization of my position. I was like, well, actually... And then went down it the wasn't. Rights. <laughs> like the federal then, government shouldn't have a say in school. And she, by the way, in a lawyer-like fashion, yeah. like the lawyerly answer that Kamala Harris gave, she really nailed it in talking about um, the federal government and the need for the federal government to intervene. But, but Asha, jump in on this. Bring your lawyer, lawyer wiles. Yeah. So the thing I really like about Kamala Harris is she actually was a prosecutor. For a very long time. She's not just claiming that she was, she is. And she and her team have clearly studied Biden's answers on these types of issues and knew how to trap him in. So she started generally, knew he would talk, would give something off the cuff that was... So you think she had a prosecutorial strategy? Like she was. No, I really do. Interesting. They sat down. She got him on cross. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Because you know she brought it up herself. I don't know if you remember, but she 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 went into it and and started it, hoping that he would fall into her trap, and then moved him in. And she knew that he still doesn't have, after his whole team talking about it, still doesn't have a good answer about why one of the things he has a lot of pride about is being able to work with segregationists and why he was bringing that up. And she knows that, and she's been bringing it up in interviews coming into the debate. So I think it was all planned. And I think what made her such a good prosecutor to rise up in a place like Northern California where there's a bunch of legal talent, lots of Democrats, is that fact that she planned and she went in for the jugular and was just like, I know what I want to get out of this. I'm going to get it and I'm going to get out cleanly. Well, he was barely able to land anything on her. Well, and, and what's fascinating is that she planned and he clearly didn't. No. That's the thing. So I, I have to tell you that I was very struck by the Joe Biden that I remember. I mean, you're talking about the Joe Biden of the memes. I'm going back to the Joe Biden of the 2008 race when he ran himself and before that even, and Joe Biden in the Senate when he was sharp Mm -hmm. and on it Mm -hmm. and a really smart, by the way, really smart debater. Mm -hmm. 
Um, and in debates, he usually gave as good as he got, but also like he had this fantastic way. In the in the vice presidential debates that he did, um, both in 2008 and 2012, against McCain and Romney, uh, against the McCain and Romney's vice presidential candidates, respectively, um, he was compelling. He was in, he was sharp. I mean, it's not hard to be compelling against Sarah Palin, to be fair. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but it was a really cha- no, it was a really challenging brief, though. Actually, I think yeah, it's a great no, example fair. because actually, compared to Kamala Harris. With Sarah Palin, he clearly had thought about how he could come across as not patronizing, not patronizing like respectful, but also come across as stronger. And he did a really good job of that. With Kamala, he flubbed it. Yeah. It was really awkward. But also he came across as much older. And I really, my main impression was coming back, coming out of that debate was he feels like more than 10 years older than mm. when who I remember him. Who was the one who kept going on about his age, the Kenneth-looking one? Oh, Eric, Eric Swalwell. Swalwell. Thank you. I keep putting, in my head, he's now Kenneth. From I was like, he was clearly trying to make a generational argument, but I was like, Buttigieg is younger than you. Yeah. So that's, that's what didn't really work for me. Is on that stage, he wasn't like, he wasn't, wasn't the, the youngest guy candidate. there. Um, oh, what's the age difference? I don't even know. But he uh, must be also a millennial-ish. Ish, whatever. Yeah. But I mean, I mean, I do sympathize with this idea that like Al Gore is younger than Biden or Sanders. Yeah. You know what I mean? Al yeah. Gore ran like twenty no, years ago. And there ago. was a moment where Swalwell was making that case where the camera pulled, pulled to Sanders and Biden, who were stood next to each mm-hmm. other. Yeah. And it did look that that was a striking mm-hmm. image. Uh, but I do. I don't think it's Joe's age. It's that the the world has moved on and Joe hasn't. Yeah. And that could be true if he was thirty, mm-hmm. um, but just hadn't moved on properly. Yeah. I mean, we know when Tucker Carlson is youngish, but he hasn't moved on. He's still with bloody bow ties. <laughs> uh, but so I, it's, it's not. I don't think it's an ageist point. It's a. It's that he hasn't. He hasn't. Mm. It clearly has not yet worked out where this democratic debate is at. And so, he's playing a 2008 game. So Swalwell, the, the moment that you're talking about, I just want to read back the quote because I wrote it down. So um, Swalwell challenged by, Biden by saying, I was six years old when a Democratic candidate came to the California Democratic Convention and said it was time to pass the torch to a new generation. That candidate was Joe Biden. He was right when he said it was time to pass the torch and it's right and he should pass the torch now. And then he kept saying again and again, pass the torch, pass the torch. I, th- I think it was really interesting because I think it was a, good line but he shouldn't have overplayed it but he kind of overplayed it and it didn't feel like it was right coming out of his mouth yeah i I mean i think it was a great line and if he'd stopped at the anecdote yeah it would have been a hit it's that he kept going and then it felt cruel Mm -hmm. yeah yeah and and i agree that it's not just an age thing i mean warren is fairly old herself but it's it's the idea that you're still listening you're still evolving you're still keeping in touch with other people you're not lecturing people about how things used to be and how that was better and how you can get us back there which biden started to get this very like luxury quality yeah. like, let yeah, me tell you this, how this is yeah and this last couple of weeks of we used to have civility mm. so you've got you've got biden as the old guy who used to have civility bernie is the get off my lawn guy yeah mm. and it just and you know neither of them are actually giving you a future mm. view yeah um and I, yeah i love some of bernie's revolutionary mm. spirit I'm, not, I'm so down for the revolutionary spirit. I just wanted to have a plan, which is why I'm Elizabeth Warren rather than Bernie. But 
a planned revolution that's so uh, soft left on me. <laughs> Just make it a sensible revolution. <laughs> Such a baby. Make sure we pack food. Yeah. <laughs> but, Literally. Yeah, yeah. But I, I, um, it well, just, yeah, it, it, it felt like <coughs> the past talking to the future. We should probably talk about Bernie Sanders because he is the other top tier candidate on the stage. And I'll tell you, my impression tonight was it <coughs> didn't feel like in a weird way he registered at all. Nothing uh, everything he said felt like Bernie's greatest hits. Very few things felt fresh or original. I almost wonder if he is suffering from the thing that's gotten him this far. Basically, he's gotten this far because of the name recognition and the kind of understanding of him that was created in 2016. But because he hasn't changed any of his actual language, let alone policies and positions, it just feels a bit like, yeah, 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 I know that. Mm -hmm. And it's kind of people are maybe, maybe it's just me, but I was a little bit like, yeah, I've literally heard you speak that sentence three times yeah. in other debates and other issues. Bernie Sanders hasn't changed his mind in 30 years. It's just that he hasn't been heard. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so now, of course, he still hasn't changed his mind, and that's fine. Mm -hmm. But it is just repetition. Yeah, and I think that direct communication sounded fresh and different a few years ago, but now I think that there's a bunch of candidates in the field who are very good at kind of doing that kind of direct communication. Like it felt a lot like Kamala Harris was kind of talking to you yeah. directly yeah. in a very clear tone. And so I think that his uniqueness in that aspect has definitely decreased over yeah. time. I mean, that's the big threat for him, isn't it? I mean, from the beginning, the challenge has been, is there someone else who's going to come along and claim the progressive left? And the answer has been, yes, almost everyone. Yeah. <laughs> Literally almost everyone from Kamala Harris to, um, you know, certainly well, we Warren. We mention him in the first debate, mainly because I don't think he's going to get much further, but no. Bill de Blasio was really trying to claim that mantle, mm -hmm. um, which was... I'd not, I didn't expect that, really. Yeah, Bill de Blasio. So Bill de Blasio, as podcast listeners will know, is somebody who, when he entered the race, I had this real moment of throwing up my hands and going, oh, FFS. Yeah. <laughs> really? Yeah. Is literally everybody going to run just because I was like, well, come on. Yeah. You, you know, well, he's, what, what are you bringing that's missing? What yeah. are you bringing that's missing? Well, being prepared. I must say, he was more prepared. He was. He was more prepared. Ryan. Some of the others. So right. in that way, he did better. <laughs> so I have a very shallow opinion of Bill, Brasio, Bill de Blasio, which was I liked a lot of things he had to say. He has a very bad case of resting bitch face. Mm. Yeah, he just looks like pissed He off. looks really oh, pissed off. <laughs> <laughs> Dude, chill, baby. Chill. Bernie's got the same thing. Bernie does too. Yeah. What are your uh, so I, I've, I've confessed one of my shallow opinions. I have other shallow opinions. One of which, as we've talked about before, oh my god, Tulsi Gabbard's hair! It's beautiful. Oh my she god, looks so amazing. So <laughs> also, Kamala looked amazing. Yeah. Also, I, I have to admit, I did not know that Cory Booker's eyes were blue, and I googled halfway through. We also were having a debate, weren't we, about like whether there's been a bald president before? Because you know you've got a couple baldies up there, among which Cory Booker is a pretty serious candidate, and you know no they hair. Must have. They must have had lots of bald. Well, I was saying maybe maybe not in the post wig era. The no, in the modern. I mean, because Russia have got this thing where if you look at. <laughs> Russian presidents lined up. You get hair balls, hair balls, hair balls. It's the most consistent thing about Russia. Um, but I can't 
think of a gold American president. Maybe. Well, definitely in the 19th century. Yeah. But, yeah. But, uh, and I was thinking about in the UK, and I had to go back to Atling, I think. Atling, yeah. There you go. So, um, yeah. So, on style and appearance, um, who was most entertaining? Well, in a box of frogs way, I would say Marianne Williams. Because <laughs> what the fuck was that? Give me she and why? And I really do. I said this to you before we started recording. I, I would love to see her played by Jane Curtin. Yeah. <laughs> I'm just really worried that, like, in a cult of personality era, the more that you get free publicity through things like yeah. SNL and stuff, the more your star just kind yeah, of yeah, yeah. rises naturally. And I know, at least in California, probably through, like, Arizona, New Mexico, and up to Oregon and Washington, there's actually a lot of people who kind of like that kind of, for lack of a better new word, new-agey mm-hmm. thing. And they could see her, if people really pick it up and start doing SNL, like, actually making it to the next debate, which would freak me out. <laughs> you know? I'd be like, what? How did this happen in the world? What are the rules for the next debate? So there are going to be... Two more sets of debates. The second one, I think the rules are largely as they are. The third one, which is getting in for autumn. So I think the second one is in July. I think the third one is 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 later on. I want to say it's like August, early September. Um, the third one gets gets a little bit more selective. They're basically doubling the criteria. Um, so you need to have, instead of 1% of the polls, you need to have 2% of the polls. And instead of $63,000 do- donor. 63,000 donors. I think it's you need to have like 124,000. But crucially, you need to have both, not one or the other. And I think that's a very sensible set of rules, especially in the third round of debates when we've already had plenty of opportunities to hear from these candidates. I'm I'm like, it was a long three and a half hours. It was a long, nearly four hours. I mean, we had it harder than most. Yeah. Oh, we watched oh. it back to back. Yeah. We did watch them all in one night. Yeah. Um, and maybe if you did it over two nights, it was a bit easier. Um, but they've got to start winning the field. I mean, it's, uh, you know, initially, and you, I said this on the podcast, yeah, you've got so much talent. I'm not sure there was, like, maybe 70, 60% of that stage was definitely talent, and that's great, but the 40% really need to go away and do something else. Okay, but what about that talent? So I did look at that stage and go, both of those stages, and go, there are some great people on here, fantastic people. The question underlying it in everyone's mind is, which of these people is going to stand next to Donald Trump on that debate stage and kick his ass? Yeah. Um, now, from a debate point of view, it seems like there's, to me, there's a clear winner on that question. It felt like Kamala Harris yeah. was the one, mm-hmm. yeah. from a debate point of view, debate point, absolutely. who Kamala would do Harris the best job. Would kick his ass she, would, she would kick him halfway to Sunday. Yeah. Um, I think that there are probably about five or six people who are serious, yeah. who are likely to get it, who could do it. Um, and I think everybody else on that stage needs to have a little word with themselves and go, what's more important, my ego or the Democratic Party? Or run election? for Senate. Run for Senate. Oh, yeah. Or Congress. Yes. Or Governor. Yes. We need governors Governors, too. Come on. Absolutely vital. Okay. So let's wrap this up. Asha, thinking about both debates together, who is the person who's moved the most forward in your estimation and who's the person who's moved the most backward in your estimation? I think... Wherever they were to start with. Yeah, I think Julian Castro did because I, was, I only had him in my top tier because of the immigration issue, but actually every time they called on him, he had like a good, clear 
good answer. Um, and then I think the person who moved really back was like, Beto O'Rourke just looks so tired and listless up there. And he has to do better. He just really does. Uh, okay, I won't say those two, although I would have done, because it would make very, very boring podcasting. So I will say the person who moved forward most, even though she was fairly far forward anyway, was Kamala Harris. Um, the person who moved backwards for me... It's hard not to say better, and it really is, because we couldn't remember his name, mm -hmm. and a year ago, I was like, oh my God, that's amazing, that speech is so wonderful. Um, Joe Biden, actually. Mm -hmm. I mean, you know, God love him. I wasn't probably ever going to be a Biden gal, but I was really disappointed in him tonight, really yeah. disappointed. So, it, it feels like... so. Interesting, because we've got one that almost feels like it's the first debate. Mm -hmm. You're saying, so Beto moved backwards, mm -hmm. Castro moved forward. That was very much the dynamic of that debate. And you're very much summing up the second debate, which is basically the, the Harris-Biden showdown. Um, and I agree with both. Um, and I think, you know, there were there were a couple of like little also rare candidates who I basically just kind of came away going, I have given you a fair hearing mm -hmm. and now you need to stop. Mm -hmm. So my people, I... So my person I feel left less well about are all of the people who are pulling under 2%. Mm -hmm. Like, just go home. Yeah. Stop. Be, be done. Um, and I think the person who moved the most forward in my estimation, it, it probably is Kamala Harris, but I'm not going to say that because you've said that. So I'm going to say Cory Booker mm -hmm. because, like you, Emma, I um, – I, always find that the more I actually watch and listen to Cory Booker, the better I like him. Mm -hmm. When I read about him, I'm put right off. And I think, you know, it's, I'm reminded of the fact that Cory Booker is kind of like a superhero in that he like rest, runs into burning billions mm -hmm. buildings and rescue people. I actually was very compelled by his story about the fact that he still lives in a very kind of low-income African-American yeah, community yeah. in Newark, New Jersey. Mm -hmm. And he's the only candidate on that stage who does live in a community like that. And I kind of I kind of like that. And I feel like we do need that in our politics mm -hmm. and in our country. So I, I, I'm going to give Cory another look after this. All right. Well, thank you for that. Um, let's just wrap up with a quick episode of the Gut Check Game. So for those who are new to the podcast, um, the way this works is I have scribed a whole bunch of quotes that I pulled out from the debate as it was happening. Um, because I wasn't able to print those out because I'm still in the debate venue where we were watching it, um, instead of pulling them out of my trusty Rexot's baseball cap because I couldn't print anything out, I've just described them to numbers in my Excel spreadsheet and I'm going to use a random number generator to come up with that. So this is my high-tech solution to what works better um, with, with, with my Red Sox baseball cap. So just pretend this is my Red Sox baseball cap and I'm going to randomly generate Number 39, and the quote that I subscribed, subscribed for 39 was from Pete Buttigieg. And it says, on a path to citizenship, so he's talking about a path to citizenship for undocumented immigrants. This White House has decided, divided us along a consensus issue. Washington can't deliver on something the American people want. Um, basically making the point that people agree about the need for comprehensive immigration reform and a sensible path to citizenship. How do we react to that? Yeah, it's a good line. It's it was a really, good, a really line. good line. And and it both makes a progressive argument, but it puts the progressive argument on the side of the American people. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah. 
I think that's right. And I think it's a I think it's probably one of many examples of that happening. I think there are a lot of issues around gun control which where abortion. that is similar or an abortion. Um so dividing us along a consensus issue is is definitive for the Republican yeah. Party and they should stop doing that. No, and I think that actually you should take that line and think about that line of questioning and how you frame that as the Republican message. Mm. Yeah. Okay, so the next one, number 45, the quote I scribed is from Andrew Yang. He says, I think Russia is the biggest threat facing the democracy because they've been hacking our democracy successfully and they've been laughing their asses about it for a few years. See, the question wasn't, are they a threat to our democracy? It's who's the biggest threat to us on the geopolitical stage? And my answer to that is uh, the same as, I think it was Pete Buttigieg, yeah. which is China and climate change. I think that was Castro said Might that. Might be Castro, might yeah. be Castro. They were stood next to each other. No, Buttigieg and Castro were on different debates. Were they? Yeah. Anyway. No, then it was definitely the first debate. Yeah. So you're Castro right. was, was in the Castro. first debate. You're right. I apologise. Um, it's very late. <laughs> <laughs> You're doing great. Anyway, but um, yeah, yeah, you were, you were think, saying it's China. So I think in terms of, yes, democracy, but Russia is clearly yeah. a meddler. But Russia is in many ways like a Batman baddie. Um, you know, they, they, they're, they're fun to think of, but actually the bigger problem, a much more systematic and much more polar, and I think China is that, in terms of geopolitics and in terms of, of existential threat to the United States and everybody else, it's climate change. So, yeah, well, well, okay, yeah, so well, agree so with I, that. Well, the one interesting thing about China is they're actually doing well on climate change. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So they that's are one indeed. of the areas actually where they're doing better. I mean, I, I think the question is. China's trying to make a case to the world that the United States has shown that democracy fails. Yes. Yeah. And that we should be following a China model going forward. And China's going to show how organized they can be and how they can run the world better. Yeah. Yeah. And that you should just succumb to that. Um, But then I think that what Russia really discovered, which really worries me, is that it's very easy to just be a bad faith actor, messing things up all over the world. Yeah, the penguin. Yeah, yeah. That apparently you can't recover. You know what I mean? Like, like the countries are having a lot of problems recovering from Russia just wandering around mentally. I mean, in the short term, absolutely. I just think in the longer term... Then it, yeah, I just, I just, I just see it really differently because I I think I understand the point you're making. So first of all, climate change is, I think we can all get on board with in terms of genuine security threat, the thing that's most likely to cause cataclysmic cataclysmic problems to the United States of America, climate change is it. Between Russia and China though, the way I think about it is, is different. See, China is the biggest the biggest challenger in the sense of they are the ones who's growing the most quickly, who have the most, who are developing the most economic power, um, who have a different system than ours, which is genuinely a competition to ours. So it's challenging in that sense, but they are less interested in us than, than Russia is in the sense of, I don't think they are dedicated to undermining our democracy. It's not a goal for them. They, they see us as a client state. They see us as somebody that borrows money from them, and they're happy for us to keep doing that. You're trying to own an awful lot of your debt. They so do. If they decide tomorrow that they're going to screw you, they could screw you really badly. But the, theoretically, they could. So that's why I say, like, I'm saying it's a theoretical threat, but, like, China's China's operation has always been to 
disengage itself from international affairs oh, no, 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 politically no, no, no. whilst Belt engaging it economically. Um, Belt, the China are, have bought their way into huge swathes of the world's economy. Yes, agree. And they are totally. exercising that economic muscle politically in a lot of places that we don't yet understand. But isn't this like a personality thing? Like China's anti-chaos because they really yeah. need predictable factors. They actually really value yeah. that as a nation. Whereas Russia is like chaos agents. Yeah, like they, that's they, the thing. They, they so, want to profit off of the chaos. And then they are very anti-climate yeah. change. They if, really want to drill into yeah. the Arctic. They really, really want to drill into the Arctic. And they have this like weird cavalier idea about climate change, which seems to be if it gets warmer, like we will be fine. Well, they yeah. have said most of the worst <laughs> so right. that yeah, sort of makes sense. Um, I mean, yeah, I think again, it's not. I mean, I don't think it's it denying one or the mm. other is a problem. It's, yeah, it's a short-term, long-term view thing. I think maybe. Yeah. I mean, that's um, the thing. I, I agree with you. Short-term, long-term thing. I think in the short term, Russia will do everything it can to undermine our democracy and our entire system of democracy, and not just America's, but all of the Western world, because it can and it wants to, and it thinks it's kind of it, it has a, a a chaos agenda. You're absolutely right. Yeah. And I think the reason I find that the biggest threat right now is because they have identified a weakness that we have still not resolved. Right. China's motivations are different. They don't necessarily want to take us down as a system overnight. They want to buy us out and they certainly are challenging us and they want to overtake us. But I don't think they want to destroy our current functioning system. I think the reason I think China's a bigger threat is Russia embraces chaos because it's weak. Mm, that's true. The reality is Russia is weak and chaos is its best tool. China likes stability because it's strong and it wants to strengthen. And in the long term, that's a bit of threat. Yeah, I mean, I think it is interesting that North Korea, Iran, and Venezuela are all strong allies of Russia. Yeah. And they all of a sudden are becoming like our worst enemies and in a cyclical, chaotic way. And I don't think that's a coincidence. But look, this is a fantastic debate, but I realize we're doing a presidential debate now. (laughs) So any of us for president, Definitely, but I'm let's get I back. Don't qualify much <laughs> I still would vote for that you, <laughs> certainly over the current president. Um, okay, so I'm going to do another one. I think let's do. Should we do two more? Okay, wrap it up. So number twenty-one. Uh, da, 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 no, I don't. Oh, no, sorry, number twenty-five. Okay, this is a Castro quote, um, Julian Castro. My first visit after I announced my candidacy wasn't to Iowa or New Hampshire. It was to San Juan, Puerto Rico. I like that he had the courage to say that because for a long time, the Democratic Party was very concerned about centering a certain demographic, which tended to be a Midwestern, white, um, kind of middle-class demographic. And it was very important to emphasize all the time your roots back to that. And so for him to just be out of the gate, being like, I went somewhere else and talked to other Americans, not that one is better than the other, it was just Mm. nice to hear a different area that's being really impacted and forgotten. And another area that's been forgotten. I liked that. Yeah, um, and I agree with all of that. Um, my only issue would be it's a shame it takes the Latino candidate to do mm-hmm. that. Um, but, I mean, it, it did and he did. And he was yeah. fantastic. And, yeah, it's a great line. And and, and I think particularly Puerto Rico, um, because there are disenfranchisement issues, mm-hmm. you know, 
uh, having gone there first rather than to New Hampshire or Iowa is actually really a powerful statement. Yeah, so, I mean, it's... Demo democratically as well as in terms of racial yeah, democratically with a big D and a small D, because um, so as a as a voter in the District of Columbia, it, yes. it, it, it's a particularly painful issue for me because I have no congressional representation. But I think the other thing that struck me about that statement was no one else on the stage alluded in any way, shape or form to the way that Puerto Rico has been horrifically let down in the wake of their hurricane and the thousands of people who have needlessly died there due to failed federal intervention. And it's shocking to me to this day that, you know, I think back to when Hurricane Katrina happened and yeah, it was yeah. rightly the whole a national scandal. And Puerto Rico has had a similar level of disruption mm. and chaos and has still not recovered by mm. any way, shape or form, still has electricity out in a lot of places, has an ongoing health crisis caused by infectious diseases, and no one is talking about it. It's one of the many um, horrible things that have happened under the Trump yeah. administration that we haven't coped with because we don't have the bandwidth for it. So I was glad Castro made yeah. space for it. Yeah, I think it's interesting. I don't know why, but the national media seems to have trouble covering the fact that large swaths of the United States are in flood or on fire at any given time. Like, you don't get that sense. But someone else brought up the fact, I forget who it was, that they were in a place that was flooded. And it was flooded all over. And I really liked that perspective because it's happening all around you yeah, at this point. Absolutely. Climate change is here, folks. Yeah. Absolutely. Okay. One last one. I hope it's a good one to go out in. Uh, okay. I'm sorry. It's it's a Marianne Williamson quote. Oh, good. <laughs> um, so, and actually, I'm going to I'm gonna arbitrarily insert one quote after this that I still want to cover because we haven't talked about it. But let's do the Marianne Williamson quote. Um, when she crazily said... Um, I would call it her first action after president, very first action, very first oh, yes. day. <laughs> when she said, Emma remembers it now, I would call the prime minister of New Zealand who said she wants New Zealand to be the best place in the world for a child to grow up. And I would tell her, girl, you're so on. What even is that? I mean, what? <laughs> yeah. What? Like, okay. I mean, have you seen New Zealand? Right. You want to go up there. Also, New Zealand, much like UK, had one mass shooting, went right, they're bad. We're done. Mm -hmm. We're done. Mm -hmm. I didn't understand even, a lot of the times it got where she was going, even if she had strange like, ways of expressing it, but that one I honestly was a complete non sequitur. I wasn't sure even what she was trying What's to imply or Is that some like really famous thing that every American can no. immediately go, I know exactly what the uh, no. Prime Minister of New Zealand said? Because my impression of American politics is that, I mean, big fan as I am of Disinteralton, mm. I don't think 99.9% .9 of the people who were watching that debate even engaged enough to watch that debate could name Disinteralton. Okay, right. so I want to wrap this up by bringing it back to a quote um, from Kamala Harris in the second debate. Um, you may remember the moment went like this. There was lots of back chatter, lots of arguing back and forth. Everybody was shouting at each other for, for a good 30 seconds. It felt yeah, like yeah. the whole thing descended into chaos and nobody could be heard. Eventually, the moderator managed to call on Kamala Harris. He said, guys, you know what? Americans do not want to witness a food fight. They want to know we're going to put food on their table, um, which I thought was, A, a really good line, which I assume she'd Pretty written prepared, and prepared. Yeah. <laughs> but but also, like, but yeah. did she, though? Because she didn't know that was going to happen, right? 
No, and, but I and think or the caring for that to happen would yeah. be a stupid thing to do. Mm. Exactly. Um, but so it was a good line. It was well delivered. But also it just really, it felt to me like from a persona point of view, mm. she was like, this is mine. And everybody else went, yes, Miss Harris. Yeah. <laughs> she, she was in charge. And that, that put her absolutely in charge. And she'd already kind of not dominated, mm. but relaxedly taken charge. But that moment she was just like, this is it's mine. Yeah. yeah. And given that she was, she's not like top three. Yeah. Um, that's a ballsy mm. move. Sorry, a uterusy move. A uterusy <laughs> move. Yeah, I mean, I think she really was, I'm, I'm mixing my characters here, but it was almost like Athena with the flaming sword yeah. type of thing. Just like going through and being like, I don't suffer for fools, which is her reputation generally. Yeah. I don't suffer fools. I have things I need to do. I I need, and you're going to listen to me now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was thinking to myself that if I could take Kamala Harris, Kamala Harris's prosecutorial and debate skills, um, Pete Buttigieg's intellect and kind of persona and um, affect and media management, and 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 Elizabeth Warren's policies, I would have an amazing candidate. I actually wondered to myself because I was thinking to myself. I would like someone slightly older than Buttigieg and younger than Warren. I would like someone in a, in a perfect world, right? I would like someone who kind of divides us too. And then I kind of watching that debate, I was like, is Harris that person? Is she that middle ground? And I think a lot of people are asking themselves that question this weekend. I think that's what Harris has done. Uh, yeah. And that's what she needed to do. Yeah. Yeah. She's done what she's needed to do. I mean, I think the question is I, as a lawyer and a woman who was born in Berkeley, California, and I'm very <laughs> familiar with her career, feel very comfortable with her being her authentic self, and that really resonated with me. I'm, I'm going to be curious as she travels around and it keeps on going whether that resonates with other people. I hope so, but I, I just don't know. Right. Okay, well, that has been a really interesting night of conversation, both on the stage and and here in the podcast. I thank you both so much. Um, and I would love to get both of you back again for the next round of debates if you're up for the challenge. Always. Yeah. yeah. I know. I'm never off your Right. Well, thank you so much. Um, we will talk to you again soon. And that's it. Thank you for staying with us. As always, you can reach me on Twitter at Karen J-R. That's at K-A-R-I-N-J-R on Twitter. Um, I will I record new episodes every Friday, so tune in for next week's episode um, earlier in the day on Friday. This episode, as you know, is going out a little bit later, so you're probably listening to this um, on Saturday or thereafter. Um, uh, if you have not yet already registered or requested your absentee ballot for the next round of elections, please do so ASAP. Um, watching the primary doesn't count if you don't actually vote in it and the vote's going to be coming up early next year. Um, you can register at votevote.org if you are an American in the US or if you're an American overseas like myself. You can go to votefromabroad.org. Thanks so much for listening and we will be with you again next week and we will continue recapping debates as they happen so look out for the next one in the end of July. <laughs>